Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we'll be discussing the art, music, and gameplay from Final Fantasy II. A little bit of a lost game in the series. There's not as much to talk about this time around as there was with the first game, because a lot of this is just little steps forward. There was a rushed development process, and they got this thing out in less than a year, trying to take advantage of the fact that the first one was such a success. But... Short development or not, actually one of the things is that it's still written and directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi, but our designers are Hiromochi Tanaka, Akatashi Kawazu, and Koichi Ishii. Uh, no Hiroyoku Ito, who's one of the most important people in the franchise's history. He was the, a major debugger on the first game. He would go on to invent the active time battle system and direct co-direct Final Fantasy VI. He had no part in this game, so that might be part of why it's not as quality, though we'll get into talking about that at the end, if, if we can make that argument. The composer was, of course, Nobuo Uematsu, and the artist Yoshitaka Amano. There's always good stuff to talk about there. As always, we want to begin with the gameplay, and so, Ira, where do you want to start with the gameplay from Final Fantasy II? The first thing I'd like to talk about is the password system. At least I've always known it as the password system. I don't know that anybody else talks about it that way. But basically, throughout Final Fantasy II, there will be characters who use certain phrases or talk about certain items, and then your your heroes, they will remember those phrases. So, for example, Wild Rose. We talked about the Wild Rose Rebellion a couple times now. Your characters will hear that phrase, Wild Rose, and then they can use it later with other NPCs to maybe get more story or advance the story or get some more information or learn about where a thing is. So this is not a thing that continued on. It's only in this game, and it's it's sort of a, a precursor to uh, what's it called in I think it's Mass Effect when you can you've got those conversation trees. Yeah, yeah, they may even just be called conversation trees, but they're they're pretty much commonplace in RPGs now. I don't know the technical term because I don't play as many of those style of games. I watched somebody play Mass Effect One and Two and thoroughly enjoyed the storyline. But yeah, I don't I don't know the lingo for that as well. But those, sure, I, I think everyone knows what we're talking about here. Right, right. So that it, it's kind of like that, but a really really early version of it. You don't see it again in Final Fantasy games. It's just a, a sort of a way to try to add a little more interaction, even though really it's just, I mean, you need to know, you you need those things to progress the storyline, so they weren't really necessary because you're going to progress the storyline anyway. The only other thing I'll mention about it is that there is a callback to it in Final Fantasy XIV. The Scions of the Seventh Dawn, their password is Wild Rose, which made me do a little happy dance when I, when I first saw it. <laughs> I love it when they can call back on something that obscure from their their past that you know that's a deep cut. <laughs> a lot of people never got the chance to play this game which we'll talk about because it didn't come out in the United States until well well after its original release in Japan but uh, one of the other to download ROMs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But one of the things that also made me think of that in a later game a little bit is in Final Fantasy VI, of course, the famous opera scene when you have sure. to memorize lines of dialogue. Not exactly the same, but it is this: you've got to remember the words, and then you've got to choose the right ones at the right time. Again, a very kind of primitive version of controlling the conversation in a way. Right. The other thing I wanted to talk about is Final Fantasy's advancement system. 
It is not a leveling up system. It's not an experience system. It's really interesting, though, again, not really used after Final Fantasy II. But before we do that, Drew, there was something you wanted to talk about with regards to the battle systems in general. Yeah, you know, we had so much to talk about for the first game. There was something I forgot to mention, and as I said in the introduction here, Hiroyoku Ito was not a part of this game, or if he was, he was, you know, really deep on the staff. I couldn't find him. But he famously said later in an interview that these early battle systems were developed and inspired largely by, and I think this is incredibly ironic, American football. <laughs> That's that uh, blending of regional sensibilities again. Exactly right, because I think if you asked people what's the most difficult hurdle for like video game players to get over, people who love video games, love good stories, are perfectly into fantasy and whatever else, but why they might not be into the Final Fantasy series, I think what I've heard at least the most is that silly battle system where you just stand there and wait for them to hit you, and then you wait to hit them and everyone just stands there. And does this ridiculous thing. When you think about it being based on American football, though, it, it makes a ton of sense. There's almost literally like a line of scrimmage right down the middle. Mm-hmm. And you're you're supposed to wait for the right time. And then you're allowed to attack. And you take turns attacking and defending. Even something like punting in football would be kind of equivalent to healing up, using a turn to heal up and protect you know use protective magic or something like that i think it's really interesting because like you said it's very much a mixture of western and eastern sensibilities the idea that a western audience who's more used to the freedom that a lot of other games allow you to take in the battle system but you know we accept that american football the rules just dictate that yeah they're on attack and they're on defense and there's a certain amount of rules that govern that and you just kind of accept it What's funny is then I think the next logical step is, well, sure, but that's in a game. You would never do that in battle. (laughs) But we used to, as a a species, human beings used to battle in that way. Line up and march at each other and take turns attacking and defending. Right. Another extension of this, we're jumping ahead, but as I mentioned, Hiroyoku Ito invented the active time battle system for Final Fantasy IV, and that was largely inspired by American race car driving. How so? It's that sense of speed, certainly. I I think he just said as he was watching race car driving, he was thinking about how speed could affect battles, and how there's an inherent... I don't know, kind of joy in getting to the finish line or in crossing, even if it's just going around in a circle one time, each time you get to that space. And so that's kind of how attacking in the active time battle system works. It's like you go around in a circle over and over and over again. And each time you hit the flag mark or the finish line or the starting line, whatever it is, I don't know if anyone who's listening to this can tell, I am not a race car fan. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that idea being that you get kind of constantly rewarded and you could find ways to speed up or slow down strategically or slow down the other guys or speed them up and it adds this whole other element to what you're doing but again yeah a combination of eastern and western sensibilities is there a a third real life sport that has in some way impacted final fantasy combat in general yes there is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the uh, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be seen for a while, but I think this is, again, another 
brilliant application of the idea is when the judges would arrive, not really in, in Final Fantasy XII, but in Final Fantasy Tactics Advance of all yes, places. Those frickin' judges. Yeah. They're biased. Ugh. <laughs> but right, it was darn umpires, man. That wasn't a yellow card. Uh, oh. And and yeah, they actually take the yellow card, red card system from soccer. It's not American soccer. It's wor- the game of football, really. So right. it's the wor- the world game. But yeah, from another sport, they take that yellow card system that I think is really really cool. And again, you've got rules of battle, and they're being specifically enforced here. You know, by they can come in and take you off the field of battle. Yeah. They have that they send kind you of to power. Jail. Yeah, and the the other thing that I think is really interesting about this whole conversation in terms of the battle system and how weird it can be or counterintuitive to just watch people stand there and wait to get hit is that we're to understand, I think, especially in these early games, that the graphics we're seeing are representations of events and not necessarily right. direct depictions of events. And in that way, and in fact very explicitly in Final Fantasy VI, these games are more like going and watching a play than they are... Right. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. You know, because in a play, all the actors on screen... Or, jeez, not on screen, on stage. See, that's how, how used to it we are. But on stage, they're speaking way louder than any normal person would, and you kind of just accept that because they're talking to the people way in the back. Or... In musicals, you just kind of accept that people are going to break into song, even though that doesn't really happen in real life. You know, these perfectly choreographed dance numbers out of nowhere. In the same way, this art is an interpretation of a story and of events and not supposed to be just a direct depiction uh, uh, like a reality show or something. Right. So in Final Fantasy 2, there isn't a leveling system like there is in Final Fantasy 1 and pretty much all the other Final Fantasies uh, after Final Fantasy 2. Instead, there is what they call the skill-based advancement system, which would go on to be used by the Saga games and, and never again Final Fantasy. Though maybe there's a case for it in Final Fantasy 11, but we'll have that. We'll make our confessions about Final Fantasy 11 later. Yeah. <laughs> in any case. So what this means is rather than having your stats and skills go up and get better as you level up, they get better depending on what you use. So for example, if you've got a guy equipped with a sword and you use a sword, he will get a little bit better with his sword. If you have him cast his ice spell, his ice spell will get a little bit better. If he gets hit and he uses his shield to block, his defense will get better. The more he gets hit, the the more his hit points will go up. The more magic he uses, the more his magic points will go up and his skill with magic, and, and so on and so forth. And it's it's an interesting system. And when I was playing this in college with my roommate at the time, with whom I still play D&D, by the way, good dude, we decided that the way we were going to play it, and he started this, and at first I thought he was kind of cheating, because that's, <laughs> you know, that, that's how he does things. But we would go out, you know, into the, into the world map and get attacked by enemies, and then we would put those enemies to sleep, and we would fight each other. We would attack our own characters. Because, again, the more you use your stuff, the better you get at your stuff. The more you get hit, the better your hit points and defense get and that sort of stuff. So we thought of it as, we're going to go out and find a goblin to watch us spar. You know, we're going to go out <laughs> and fight against each other. We're going to go spar so we can get leveled up and, and not leveled up, but we can advance our skills and, and powers and 
you know, so we can eventually defeat the Empire. So it was, it's, it's an interesting system. It is abusable in that way. The other story I want to tell about this system is my, my roommate, Matthew. He leveled up his Toad spell. He used Toad so often because it was one of the ways to have the enemy not be able to do much while we were sparring against our own characters. Right. That he used it so much that he basically maxed out his Toad spell. And then, in the endgame, while fighting Emperor Matthias of Palamecia, he cast Toad on the Dark Emperor, the very last boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out, I, so I, I was thinking about That's this fantastic. story as, as we were getting ready, and I, I texted him and said, did that, did that actually work? And he said, no, in fact, I think it healed him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but still, maxed but was, out the Toad spell. It was a good try. It was a good attempt. It is cool that it allowed you that level of customization so early on that you could essentially just decide what you wanted to be good at. There are a lot of games. I was thinking about Shining Force. Remember those Shining Force games? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I really loved those podcast. games. Yeah, I know, right? Those were a lot of fun. But one of the things I remember being at times really frustrating was that the only way to get a good chunk of experience points was to kill an enemy in battle. That's right. And you had to so, be the one who took him down. And and there are a lot of games that work that way. I just remember because that game had a similar thing to Final Fantasy 1 where you got to a certain point and then you got to upgrade your character to a whole new class yeah. and they became but it was really difficult to get it done with like healers because sure because they needed to jump in there and hit the guy for the last hit point or whatever to right. gain experience which left them incredibly vulnerable to being killed in battle and so while i kind of like the risk reward system of that too and and the challenge that that presents and there are a lot of other games that i think work on that system really well i like this idea and i've always thought that there would be a way to implement it even in modern games now the it's just incredibly intuitive the idea that yeah the more i use my sword in battle the better i should get at wielding swords or the more of a particular kind of magic i use the more i should master that particular kind of magic as opposed to the more i do good things the more i can do other generally good things a couple of the things i wanted to mention about this system you could equip a weapon in each hand with these characters uh, a, a one-handed weapon in each hand. So you could have Firion use two swords or a sword and a dagger or something. And he would get multiple attacks and, and it would be a much more offensive character that way. You could also, this was the first time we had rows. So you could have characters in front rows and back rows. So you might have a character who wanted to use a ranged weapon like a, like a bow or be more a mage type character and put them in back and then have, you know, so they'll be attacked less often than the characters in the front row. And then, if you were so inclined, you could have a character with two shields who might, you know, when they take when they take a hit, take far less damage. So you could put everyone in the back row except for a guy with two shields if you wanted to go that route. It did allow for a lot of interesting tactics, even if some of them were less useful. Yeah. You could kind of figure out, though, and decide for yourself what was going to be useful, and that's kind of cool. So that's about it for the uh, gameplay for Final Fantasy II. Why don't you tell us, Music Man about the music of Final Fantasy 2. Well, there is not quite as large a collection as certainly there would come to be in later games. Look, Nobuo Uematsu is an unquestioned genius, uh, certainly on this podcast. And I do not a, question his genius. Uh, that's right. But 
uh, I did found that this soundtrack is a little bit lacking, certainly when compared to the rest of the series. That being said, Izuamatsu, and there are a number of remarkable tracks in this game. Starting, I think, you've got to start with the Rebel Army theme. It is the one, I think, that has stood the test of time the best. It has, it's still kind of a must play at any distant worlds or new worlds or voices concert you have to hear. I've heard at least 10 different versions of the Rebel Army theme. You can find people playing it on acoustic guitar, on the piano, full orchestra. It is indelible to the series. I think you could replace the Final Fantasy theme that plays as we've talked about over and over again on that splash card in the first game. You could just as easily have the Rebel Army theme over that scene because it's so Final Fantasy. It has all the things that the series stands for. It's triumphant and a little bit tragic and it's a bit of a march and it's it's all the things really that the series is about so let's listen to i mean everyone who's listening to this knows this theme even if they've never played this game people know this theme so let's listen to a little bit of a couple different versions of it That's not the only indelible Final Fantasy theme that we get in Final Fantasy 2 because Final Fantasy 2 is the introdu- introduction is the introduction of the Chocobos. The Chocobos. I love me some Chocobos, man, and the Chocobo theme. This is where the Chocobo theme starts. Of course, uh, as you were saying with the Rebel Army theme, everyone who knows Final Fantasy knows the Chocobos and knows the Chocobo theme, but we can't not play it, right? No, we have to. So, if it the only thing people are waiting for, people might not listen to the rest of the podcast from here on out. Everyone's just waiting for this moment. But here is your chocobo. <laughs> So a couple of interesting notes about the Chocobo theme here. One is that it is not the complete Chocobo theme that we would all come to know and love. Much Say like what? That's right. Much like the Prelude doesn't have a part of it that I think most of us, when we think of the Prelude, we all know the part that was added, I believe, in 7. I'm going to have to double check that. The, the background stuff that comes on top sure. of the Final Fantasy Prelude. But... Yeah, this Chocobo theme does not have the breakdown that we're all used to, that uh, I'm not sure when it will appear later. So as we're going through, we'll find when that appears and and let you know. But it's a stripped-down version of it, but it is a theme that still, again, to this day, if there's a Final Fantasy concert, the fans will riot if you don't play some version, and there are no fewer than 30 versions of the Chocobo theme. The character is indelible, and again, inseparable from its theme. And, as I think I've mentioned before, not one of my overall favorites, and I know that that can be blasphemous. You can't, you know, you can't critique its importance to the series by any means, but for me, in terms of Uematsu's craft work, 
it's it's not in my tops and i was actually looking back over this and we'll develop this conversation throughout the entirety of the podcast but i'm trying my best to rank or at least maybe put into tears uematsu's best works <laughs> this is an impossible task you have set yourself and i've looked at the list and i've added some notes and my goodness i you are punishing yourself with this and i'm not quite sure why yeah, I've, I've got a list of my top 50 stand-up comedians that's been published. I have a list of uh-huh. my top 50 comic book adaptations that's been published. That was pretty good. But you still haven't seen Arrow, much to your detriment. I know. I need to watch Arrow. And, and I've got all kinds of sports stuff lists that I've done. But this, by far, has been the most challenging intellectually to try to rank Uematsu's music in any kind of objective way. Uh, or even in any kind of subjective way. That doesn't make it easier. Uh, right. Well, and, <laughs> and, and you're only doing his Final Fantasy work, right? Not anything he's done on anything else. Correct. Yeah. And I'm not even including other Final Fantasy music. So there's stuff from 13 that's good and stuff from Tactics and 12 that's great. I'm not including any of that. Just Uematsu's Final Fantasy stuff. And I think I've got the Chocobo theme ranked somewhere 70 to 80. Yeah. You <laughs> blasphemer. Correct. Correct. But I do have the Rebel Army pretty high on there. And another one that we're going to talk about in a minute, the last one we'll we'll wrap up on. But before we wrap up the music conversation, there is another motif here that we talked about in our Final Fantasy I music conversation, which is that Nobuo Uematsu knows how to write a town theme. Yeah. Yeah, he does. The guy's incredible at it. And I mentioned particularly how important those kinds of themes can be invoking the Shire from Lord of the Rings, Howard Mm -hmm. Shore's work. Mm -hmm. Listen to the Final Fantasy II town music, specifically a descending line that finishes a phrase and tell me that that's not... I don't know that Howard Shore was listening to this piece of music, but certainly both artists were invoking the same kind of feel and it's a brilliant move, whether or not Howard Shore was inspired by Nobu Uematsu or whether or not Uematsu just got there first, it's a brilliant piece of mood setting. Okay, and the final piece of music that I wanted to touch on is another one that has really stood the test of time that you will hear played still at concerts, though it's not as prominent, but if you've got a great vocalist, you can do it because this was one of the first pieces of music that Uematsu would write that would ever become specifically known for having vocals attached to it. Long before we're getting to Eyes on Me, or if you want to go before that, I guess, One Winged Angel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a different mood, I think. There's singing in that, There's though. vocalizations. Mom knows who Sephiroth is because of that music. Exactly, right? So, but long before that, and another thing I think is interesting before we get into talking about the singing part of The Promised Land is that this track is the overworld theme for Final Fantasy II. And yeah. it sets... 
a very different mood than the overworld theme from Final Fantasy 1, which is very upbeat and triumphant and we're setting out on on an adventure. Yes. This is far more a darkness has fallen over the land and things don't seem right. And I think one of the things that's interesting throughout the series is you'll see it kind of go back and forth between those types of tones. One, three, and five are a bit more adventurous and upbeat. Two and four and six are dark. Then they would get kind of away from that after that. They would go into a dark phase there for a while, come out of it with nine. But there is back and forth on the overall moodiness and this particular piece of music sets the early stage that Final Fantasy 2 for whatever else it may or may not be it's a different mood entirely than the first game Long before the internet was what it is now, before there was this plethora of fan work from cosplay to artwork to fan covers, it was difficult to listen to video game music if you weren't playing that video game. I used to, because I was a super nerd, record video game music. I would get my tape deck up next to the TV and record it on a tape and then listen to it. But eventually, there were made CDs available specifically of Final Fantasy music, and one of my favorite CDs, and again, I don't do favorites very often, so this, I think, speaks highly of it, is Prey, the Final Fantasy Vocal Collections, Volume 1. And this track is on it with the vocal track, and it is quite stunning. Yeah, also one of my favorite collections, and again, there are a lot. I mean, even ranking my top 10 or top 20 Nobuo Uematsu collections, especially if you're allowed to include like fan work like you were talking about, like there'd be a sure. couple OC remix albums on there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in addition the, to uh, stuff, more the, official the one, stuff. Uh, yeah, the, the first one I remember being fan-made was the, uh, the tribute to Nobuo Uematsu from KFSS Studios. Yeah. So it was... The guy, the guy who was named after uh, Mr. Kennedy, and then there was Mustin and, and Dale North, and oh gosh, who else? I don't know. There were a lot of guys who worked on that album, and they would go on to work on a number of other projects as well. And then you've got official stuff, like you were talking about. Prey is really fantastic. Celtic Moon. Celtic Moon, yeah, yeah. Grand finale from Final Fantasy VI. I'm sure when we get to four, we'll talk a lot about Celtic Moon. That's, that album yeah, is fantastic. Absolutely. But I, I think that that wraps up our music conversation so far. I mean, for this one, because like I said, not not a lot of other stuff from this game really stood out. Of course, the battle theme's awesome. He always writes a good battle theme. But I think those are the works really worth talking about. So so let's transition over to our good friend Yoshitaka Amano, friend of the podcast. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> You know, we love these guys. We're not making any bones about that. We're not trying to be shy about how appreciative we are of of their works. But again, maybe because of some of the short development time that was allotted, there aren't a lot of pieces of artwork that either stood out or have stood the test of time. To me, as I go back and look at this, there are a couple, in particular, the character design and sketches for Furion. Yeah, Firion's the big one with the the scarf and like the little medallions hanging off the scarf and the 
kind of wild, wildly designed sword. There's also a pretty good one with the three of them, Firian, Maria, and Guy all together. That's pretty cool. And then the other one that I can remember just off the top of my head is uh, the Emperor, who is uh, he's, he's almost got a David Bowie look about him. Yeah, the Emperor, I always thought when looking at these sketches was a woman. And as we talked about sure. in the first conversation about art, a lot of Amano's stuff was, if not specifically trying to be androgynous, at least ambiguous, not, right. you know. Uh, it, it wasn't about drawing attention to a specific gender phenotype. Right. And, and even the clothing that the emperor wears is incredibly elaborate. And like, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you said, even with Furin, there's a lot of jewelry in this. Right. So, so there are a few steps forward, I think, in terms of him accessorizing his characters. Sure. But the, the character designs, I think, for Maria and Guy are kind of bland. Yeah, not, nothing to write home about. And, and Furian, the sprite work... Is still good sprite work, but Firion looks just like the fighter from Final Fantasy One, and Leon, our Dark Knight, looks like a blue version of the fighter from Final Fantasy One. Yeah, uh, there are some uh, Joseph. Joseph actually, Joseph's got a pretty cool design, Yoshitaka Mono design. Uh, but but again, n- nothing real stand out about his sprite work. Also, the uh, that recurring character Count Borgen, who who pesters the party several times, he's got. He's almost got a, like a black mage vibe about him, but with, but with a pirate hat, and he's kind of dumpy. But so, so there are some interesting designs, but not a lot of standout ones. Not a lot of ones you would think of, or that we, you and I, have thought of when we think about the the biggest images, the the most timeless images of Final Fantasy. Right, and you know, one of the things we touched briefly on in the conversation about art for the first game was, you know, just trying to give credit to the pixel artists who took Amano's sketches yeah. and, and turned them into something. But we didn't mention, uh, strangely enough, that the series would, of course, become known for being graphically on the cutting edge all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I think this game is one of the few exceptions. It was Now, the first one was a huge leap forward, mostly in terms of like effects, like when you would cast magic spells the way the screen sure. would light up. But Final Fantasy II pretty much looks the same as Final Fantasy One, with it does, yeah, a bit of added detail here and there. When it was released many years later, it would get its own, as all the games eventually would, little CG intro, a little cutscene, because yeah. Final Fantasy would be known for cutscenes, as we've we've made it clear before. We're also very pro adding things to later versions of games. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, an interesting one because when I first played the game on that ROM emulator combo uh, in college it really i mean it just jumps you right into and you're being attacked and you get your butts kicked and so i really thought of these characters as just running away as not being able to do much but in the cgi intro there's some butt kicking of their own going on they i mean there's some knife throwing and some there's some pretty good moves so it looks like these four youngsters who would become the warriors of light they they had a little training under their belts before uh the the city got burned yeah yeah they they hold their own a little bit they yeah like you said they're at least shown fighting back i like that it's more pronounced that maria's got purple hair that was something that would be more codified in 
later versions where I'm not sure maybe they even had the color palette to do it properly on the original Nintendo. She's um, she's mostly kind of a purpley blue, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I just feel like it was clearer. I mean, that would be a problem for me at times. Maybe that was just my problem. Someone sometimes not being able to tell colors of people's hair properly until they would it would be clarified <laughs> later in the series. Um, well, and, and when I think we as an audience, like you were talking about, it's kind of like a stage play in a way. We as an audience understand that sometimes the way the character looks on the screen in pixels, it's got to be simplified. So maybe the colors are a little off because they've only got so many colors to use. So that's just the representation. Maybe it's meant to be black or maybe it's meant to be a color we're actually used to. But no, in this case, Maria, purple hair. Absolutely. Yeah. And one thing we didn't really talk about because we didn't have the time, so I think this is a good place to do it here in the second one, is the artistic changes in later iterations of the game. We've talked about a lot of other types of changes from iteration to iteration, but other than the CG intros, they would have, like they've got a lot of these games on iOS, like on your phone or whatever now, or ported to portable gaming systems, and they would make the they make the pixels a lot cleaner like the way stuff looks on iPhones now and then they would include like the Yoshitaka Amano sketch work in the character dialogue oh, box oh sure as yeah as as the uh, profiles yeah and i really like that part of it but as as sometimes choppy as the old pixel art could be i still prefer it to the the sort of smoothed over kind of bland, almost chibi-looking right. interpretations that they would put in these most recent releases. Yeah, the most recent releases, uh, the the sprites look, I don't know, maybe it's just because we grew up with the, the pixel art, but I think the pixel art is superior. I think some of this stuff, yeah, it, it almost looks too smooth. It almost looks toy-like or plastic, as opposed to a representation of a thing that could be. Yeah, it looks... Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't I know. <laughs> I think you nailed it with toy-like and plastic. I think that's right. So what is, all that being said, the long-lasting legacy of Final Fantasy II as a complete piece of artwork? Art, music, gameplay, storytelling, direction, thoughts, society, comments. What, what, what's going on here? How do we feel ultimately this game stands up, especially when compared to others in the franchise? Sure. So we've we've set out our structure for this this question that we'll try to ask about every game as being uh, so we got those five categories. You want to lay them out for us? Yeah, we'll talk about impact on society and culture. In other words, to some degree, it's timelessness and whether or not it attempts to make any comments on how we live our lives. Then we've got impact on industry. Did you break any rules? Did you set any new norms? That was a big big plus for Final Fantasy One. Three, where a lot of the subjectivity comes in. How well is it crafted? That's what we were talking about here a little bit with, you know, some of the music is great, some of it's forgettable. And then you've got impact on individuals. This is where we talk about its lasting legacy on, you know, are people still cosplaying? Are people still playing its music? How much do people still talk about loving this particular game? And sometimes that can also be reflected in its sales. Just that's one easy way to take a look at how many people liked this was how many people bought it. And then, as always, talk about whether or not there are any flaws that are particularly pronounced. 
All right, so with regards to that first category, the impact on society uh, or, or its cultural commentary, I think this one has got some of the cultural commentary impact on society, though. Uh, other than that, it was a, a sequel to one of the best-selling RPGs at the time. I don't know. Does it have a lot of impact on society? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think it has really a, a ton to say in that way. I think much more this game was kind of a challenge to its creators and an attempt to do some things they hadn't done before. But I don't know that it, in much of a way it was a challenge to its audience on that level. Right. It is a, a pretty straightforward story, Rebels versus Empire, as we've talked before. There is a little bit about, uh, you know, if we're talking about societal commentary, there's there's a lot about not letting the monolithic power of, you know, take over the world and, and try to dictate how everyone lives their lives, maybe not letting them build giant weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, I and, think ultimately if you're finding the central theme of this game, it's war is hell and you can't stand on the sidelines. And that's also the central theme of like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all the stuff we talked right, about. Right. And I think those stories do it better. And well, one of the I think one of the reasons we would say that is because there's a lot of other things going on. And there's right. I mean, there are there are some other small things going on, but not a lot else is going on in this game, uh, as far as plotline is concerned. So yeah, it it's a bit lacking, I think, in this first category. Yeah, gotta agree with that. In terms of its impact on the industry, again, not really much. And some of that was because it wasn't released outside of Japan for a long time. Some of it was just after everything they did that was revolutionary in the first game, it was going to be tough to be that revolutionary again in the second game. But I think the way in which it had an impact on the industry is actually that Final Fantasy II, as we've talked about, had a huge impact on the Final Fantasy series. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, while I don't think there were a lot of other people coming in and saying, we've got to take what they did in that game like they were with the first one, like you talked about, and then go and improve on it or, or make a challenge to try to make it better in certain ways, I think what Final Fantasy 2 did, most importantly, probably its biggest plus, if we're trying to think of a utilitarian way of judging art and using pluses and minuses here, is that it was a non-direct sequel. Yeah. And that allowed them to go so many different routes for so many different kinds of things. Yeah, it, it, it gave them the freedom to become what it is because if they felt like they had to follow up the same storyline over and over again, I mean, there are ways to do that. Zelda, you know, The Legend of Zelda is all in the same storyline and is able to bounce around. Castlevania does it. But it's really difficult if you're trying to tell episodic content and you, what you really want to do is jump into futuristic cyberpunk, but your world is a medieval fantasy world. So having a non-direct sequel really let them loose. Right. And, you know, there are a couple of interesting musical examples in the world. This is something I've, I've talked about, you know, kind of looking over there and seeing how artists are judged, uh, especially the great ones. And it's very common for... Great artists like the Beatles, or I've mentioned Radiohead as well, to release albums, usually early on in their careers, that are more about self-refinement. Pablo Honey is not a particularly good Radiohead album, but it was important for Radiohead that they make that album. Like you were saying, allowed them to understand what they could do, maybe what they shouldn't do. Um, 
I've done that musically. I remember uh, one of the first albums we released and, and I played it for you and there's one particular song on there. You're like, what is this? Why is this piece of crazy <laughs> nonsense on here? And I was just like, because I had to show that we could do that if we just felt like it. Sure. And I think here in Final Fantasy 2, you know, you see them doing it. It's like chocobos. Boom. We can do yep. that. Yep. Um, and and there are a couple, yeah, chocobos being the big one, there are a few things that move on. The, the battle or the advancement system doesn't really move on. Uh, but chocobos are, are a big thing. The beavers that we mentioned uh, an episode or two ago, I can't recall when, but uh, that are, they're sort of the proto-moogles. That would be a thing that would continue. The, not so much the beavers, but they, they certainly would have been moogles uh, had they thought of moogles by then. And then character deaths. You don't see a lot in the way of character deaths after Final Fantasy II, but it showed that they could and would do it, and that, of course, becomes extraordinarily important in later games. Right. And I think one of the things that it did well is it's a good early example of what some people might loosely refer to as dark fantasy. And this is something that I've had a number of interesting conversations with people about. In fact, I got to write a really fun article where I interviewed a number of Colorado Rockies ballplayers about Game of Thrones. And I know. And universally... The beginning of the story was, you know, I really didn't think this would be for me. I don't know about all this cloak and dagger and magic and running around in the woods and, you know, dragons and stuff like that. It's not for me. And I think that's because, especially outside of of the community, if you want to put it that way, when people think of fantasy in particular, they think of lighthearted romps. Sure. And dark fantasy is still only recently kind of being popularized. But as we talked about in the plot of this game, there's a lot of people that get dead kind of without a whole lot of warning, much like in Game of Thrones or Final Fantasy Tactics or whatever. And so I think this was a good setting apart, even if not perfectly executed, that Final Fantasy could go dark if they needed to or just wanted to. Well, and there is a lot of push and pull in, in how grim and how dark, or grim dark as it's called, you you want your adventure stories to go. And that's one of the conflicts in Marvel versus DC movies right now. And some people really don't like the DC movies because they're so grim. And some people don't like the Marvel movies because they're too lighthearted, always trying to joke around. So Final Fantasy II being a non-direct sequel, again, allows them to... Well, maybe the next one, you know, maybe the next one, our four heroes won't be wearing black the whole time. Right, <laughs> right. All right, man, uh, talk to me about craft. As we talked about, the Rebel Army theme, incredible work. The, the Promised Land, incredible piece of music. Furion's character design has stood the test of time, and I think when you look at that character alongside, like in Dissidia, you look, when you yep. see those characters, you're like, yeah, yeah Furion absolutely. still looks cool and interesting, as does the Emperor. So there are some standout works here, but if you're judging it by the standards of the franchise i think it's on the lower end even if you're just talking about quantity of good works that have stood the test of time and then when you get into upper end quality even the rebel army theme and the promised land and a lot of this is due to the restrictions of the technology but they're certainly far simpler than say one winged angel or libera fatale or you know, even something like Eris theme or sure. there's, there, yeah. So the, 
the production values across the board, I think in terms of numbered entries in the series, this is probably in the bottom three or four. Okay. But that's, I mean, I also think that's a way you can spin that and say that speaks incredibly well for the franchise, that you could have a piece of music as good as the Rebel Army theme or the Promised Land or some of, like we talked about, some of the interesting ideas with the battle systems that in some ways would be innovative if you tried to re-implement them today. It might be a way to be innovative now, but still doesn't hold up to the quality of work done in most of the other games in the series. I just think that speaks to how well-crafted most of those are. When we start talking about craft in 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's just off the charts so that's part of the problem there you'd think we never had anything negative to say about this series at all ever when we're talking about those episodes right so maybe it's good to get one in here now and just say hey look this one just doesn't quite stand up you know and i think part of the problem with that too is that not we've talked about it not being released outside of the uh, outside of japan for a while but there was a game released in the united states that was called final fantasy 2 right and uh, it's and it was Final Fantasy 4. Right. And that game is incredible in terms of yes, its it craft. Yes, so it not only is this game stuck in that no man's land of not getting a wide release, but it's also stuck where there's another game in the same series that it's oftentimes confused for that is in pretty much every way objectively a much better game. And I think that's reflected in our next category, actually, which is its impact on individuals, which, as I said, is often reflected in sales, which mm-hmm. the game did okay. Again, limited release, but ended up selling worldwide 1.28 million copies, uh, 1.08 uh, million in Japan. Does, does that count ROM downloads? Yeah. <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, I don't, th- I don't think it does. I don't think <laughs> Uh, but that I guess that's also including re-releases as of let's see 2003 so sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. the Famicom release the original Famicom release 800,000 copies though so that's pretty good and probably a lot of that on name recognition the Metacritic score for the game when it was re-released on PSP is a 63 and when it was released on iOS, on phones, it was a 73. So I think that right. is kind of a fair place. GameSpot rated it a 6 out of 10. Uh, yeah. uh, and I think that's This is a game I will still replay from time to time. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy VI is the one I replay a lot. And then yeah. certainly Final Fantasy I uh, gets, some, gets some replay action. But I do play this one again every now and then. Uh, I think it is fun and worth it and it's fun to try to say okay i'm going to have this character only use bow or whatever you know try to restrict yourself in certain ways yeah but it's not like i see a lot of people cosplaying as Furion. <laughs> right and if, and if you do want to go all the way back in time famitsu did give the original game on the famicom a 35 out of 40 so at the out time yeah i know what a weird scoring system that is but huh. Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't see a lot of people cosplaying as Furion. I don't see a lot of people drawing those characters when they do sketches on YouTube stuff. Like I said, I think the part of the game that's stood the test of time the best is the music. You will see versions of the Rebel Army and of the Promised Mm -hmm. Land and, of course, Mm -hmm. the Chocobo theme 
they're everywhere. But beyond that, I'm not sure it has had much in terms of its impact on individuals. And finally, flaws. That's another thing that's interesting is this game doesn't have a ton of pronounced flaws. I think, if anything, it's just kind of bland. It Yeah, it's a, I think it's a solid game. I think that that battle system does let you take it in different ways if you are so inclined as far as a mechanical game mechanics experience. But it is, yeah, it's just a little, you know, it's there. It's fine. It does its job. If it... If this were Final Fantasy 1, I think we might speak more highly of it, but it doesn't do enough to push Final Fantasy as a as a franchise, as a series, at least compared to its brethren. Right. Yeah, and and I think this is one of the things that I think we'll hammer home over and over again throughout the podcast is a lot of people I see that evaluate whether it be film, television shows, video games, music, whatever, they will focus on flaws. Flaws the number one thing. And if you have a couple of flaws, like Batman versus Superman, then you're bad and you can go away. And <laughs> You know, there's some people who think that movie has a lot of flaws. I, I know. And okay. you know what? Right. Fair enough. And maybe maybe we'll have that conversation at some point. <laughs> but I think there are games in this franchise that are much better than Final Fantasy II that have more flaws. There are some problems. There's some stuff that doesn't work and you just go, eh, that didn't work. Right. Off the top of my head, the Colosseum in Final Fantasy VI is designed in a really stupid fashion. It is. I, I've never been a fan of the Colosseum. That's fair. Yeah. But uh, Final so, Fantasy VI so, is clearly a better game. Right. And it's not like Final Fantasy II doesn't take risks. I mean, it, that again, that uh, advancement system is wildly different. It would never be used again. Yeah. You, you've got these mounts that are these giant yellow birds... Who thinks that's going to stick around? I mean, so they they, do, they took some risks, but it still feels a little bit samey-same in a lot of ways. Because, again, the story is is not as strongly developed. It's it's one we've seen a lot. But you could also say the same thing about Final Fantasy 1. The, the biggest difference being that Final Fantasy 1 was first. And so it was able to get away with doing a lot of the samey-same stuff because it hadn't been done yet in an RPG like that. Maybe right. Dragon Quest, kind of, but... A little bit, but yeah. It was at least taking these giant steps forward, where I think this one just kind of inched forward a little bit more. Sure. Uh, I think of this game's legacy, ultimately, in in terms of one of my favorite movies of all time, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is potentially a, a little homage to this, but I don't know, because he says, look, I just learned how to play the bass line from Final Fantasy II. And then he plays the baseline that's in all the Final Fantasy games. So my first thought was, why did he specify which game? And then my second thought was, did he mean Final Fantasy 2 or Final Fantasy 4? And then my right. third thought was, he almost certainly meant Final Fantasy 4 because that's the one that people have played and love and know. Right. And that's, I think, a sad legacy for Final Fantasy 2, but it's kind of inescapable. Well, and with the way Final Fantasy does things, there is still potential. I mean, a lot of people like the Dawn of Souls version, but there is potential for... I mean, people know who Furion is now because of Dissidia. Right. And and there's a potential for it to be redone in such a way or re-released in such a way that it gets just this sort of cult following. I mean, there's, there's still time for legacy for this game, uh, is part of what I'm trying to say here. And I, I think it's fine, and it still has potential to be something more, maybe, after another re-release. Yeah. 
I don't see why not. I'm all for re-releases and remakes and, and adding stuff in there. Man, if anything, that Castlevania Netflix show taught yes. me oh, was example. that even stories I like that I thought were kind of thin or... I wouldn't use bland to describe Castlevania stories, but thin, I think, is probably the better yeah, word. The, it is, at least in, so far as, as presented in the story, it's here's your hero, the bad guy's still Dracula, go kill Dracula. But they've managed to take the themes and ideas and characters and really blow them out and extend it. And it looks clear they're going to take their time with that. And I think you could do something similar with the world of Final Fantasy II and the concepts in there. And you'd have to add a bunch that wasn't necessarily there at the beginning. I don't remember Trevor Belmont ever dropping F-bombs in... (laughs) in Castlevania, but I think that was a good creative decision for them to go the Game of Thrones dark fantasy route, and I think you could embrace the darkness at the core of Final Fantasy 2, really blow out the character development, maybe even add some spicy dialogue, and maybe you don't remake this as a game. Maybe you re-release it as a 10-episode animated short on Netflix. Sure. Man, I'm all for that. I would do that with pretty much every game in this franchise though some of them would need way more than 10 episodes there was that time you and i tried to figure out how we would plot out a live action final fantasy 6 yeah yeah and i think <laughs> and we it can be a long done. way toward trying to figure that out yeah for a thing that will never happen that may have to be an interlude episode we do at some point as talk about the possibility for final ah! fantasy to succeed in <laughs> other mediums on film or television oh god and and what it would take and and because I'm now a big proponent that it has to be on TV if you're ever going to do it right on Hulu or Netflix, something like that where you can be episodic, where you can get away with this. This part of this conversation is not going to be in the podcast, right? We're because we've got we somewhere off topic all of a sudden. No, nah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's our podcast. We can get on yeah. topic if we want to. Yeah, we're still talking about Final Fantasy stuff. Then we're on topic, bro. <laughs> can I read the sign off this time? Yeah. Are we done? Yeah, I think we're done. <laughs> All right. That's it for this episode. <laughs> oh, man. Huh, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook. Do we have like a specific Facebook tag? It's just, just no. You search for it on Facebook. So you can search for Final Fantasy Weekly on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod. Or you can email Drew at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com and tell him all the reasons that he's wrong. Uh, that'll be How more that? fun. Than this. That, That's, that was great. That was perfect. <laughs> That's how you sign off. Thank you again for listening, and remember that the next episode, in fact, the next 50-plus episodes are all available for you to listen to on patreon.com slash ffweekly. And if you're looking for more Final Fantasy content or podcasts on Star Wars or Marvel or DC or other video games, 
any of that, you want to hear my thoughts on those things, even pro sports, which is my main job, you can check out patreon.com slash DC Productions.